Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. I want to uh, welcome you to Cross Lane. If you're new to us, so glad that you're with us today. We're in a series called Road Dogs. A road dog, just in case you don't know, is when one team is getting ready to go play another team and they're going to be going to their place. It's, we call that they're going on the road, and sometimes they know they're going into a hostile environment, and so one player will look at another and they'll say, we're road dogs, you know, kind of in, designed to encourage each other and say, hey, we can do this. And so I want to begin this morning in our second sermon in a series of six on road dogs by reading from a classic children's book, The Hobbit. It's a novel for kids, and it begins with these words, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. The opening scene is Bilbo Baggins, and he is a hobbit. He's outside his hole in the ground in the Shire, and um, he's smoking on his pipe, and he's blowing smoke rings into the air, and he's admiring those smoke rings. And, and then all of a sudden, a wizard named Gandalf walks up to him, and, and Gandalf says, very pretty, but I have no time to blow smoke rings this morning. I'm looking for someone to share an adventure that I am arranging. It is very difficult to find anyone. To which Bilbo says, I should think so in these parts. We are plain quiet folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. They make you late for dinner. That's a great line. Adventures are nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. Remember that today as we enjoin the adventure that Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke are on. Remember that not all adventures are comfortable. In our series, Road Dogs, we're following this team, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And so they're on this, what we know as the second missionary journey of Paul. And in Iconium, they have picked up Timothy. They make their way westbound to Troas. In Troas, they pick up Luke, Luke is actually the author, the one that tells us about all this stuff. He's the author of the book of Acts. And just in case you don't know, the book of Acts, the, the Gospels, the first, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, I know a lot of you know this, but we have people come to church that don't know this stuff. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are just four different accounts by four different guys that tell us the story of Jesus. The book of Acts is what happens after Jesus. After Jesus is crucified and resurrected and goes to be with God, you have the book of Acts. And I would encourage you to read a lot in the book of Acts because it shows you how the early church got started. It shows you the problems they encountered. It shows you great men and women of faith and, and how they kind of structured and organized and how they dealt with real world problems like we're going to look at today. It's about 50 AD. It's about 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And many of the people in these towns have never heard the message of Jesus. Paul and his team are carrying the message that when we could not reach up to God, God reached down to us and that Jesus died to pay off debts that were not his, they were our debts. And he came and, and there's an opportunity for us now to lay our life down for the one who laid his life down for us. This is a message that they're, they're carrying and they end up in Troas and they're confused in Troas. They've you know, they've encountered a roadblock and a detour. They've encountered another roadblock and another detour. And they end up in Troas looking for direction because they don't have any. And they're trying to figure out what is next. 
And it is here in the city of Troas that Paul lays down, takes a nap, and we're told in Scripture that he has a vision. The word uses, the, the Scripture uses the term vision. And, and that's really just kind of a special, hyper real, hyper 3D, colorful, uh, kind of like a dream on steroids. And, and he sees a man in this vision calling to him, and he says, the man basically says, hey, come to Macedonia and help us. Now, Macedonia is across the Aegean Sea, so, you know, this is going to mean a boat ride. This is going to be, it's, it's, a, it's an ordeal to get over to that part of the country. And, and Luke is the one who chronicles all this for us in the book of Acts, writes this in Acts chapter 16, verse 10. He says, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. And I've got this line highlighted because it's really important today. Concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I want you to remember that line. Concluding that God had called us. They think that God is calling them to this place, to Macedonia, and they think that they are being led by the Spirit of God. They're obeying the command of God on their life, and they're responding to what they think is the movement of God among them. They end up crossing the Aegean Sea. They land in a port. <clears throat> We're not happy. It's not the first person I've made mad this week. <clears throat> they land in this port. They make their way up into Philippi. And once they get to Philippi, um, what you would say to them is the same thing that I say to Dee Dee whenever Dee Dee is going out by herself to shop or whatever. I'll look at her, and she mocks me for this because she just thinks I'm ridiculous. But I'll look at her and say, keep your head on a swivel. And she knows what that means. She knows that I'm, I'm worried about her, and I want her to make sure because there's all kinds of nefarious things going on. We've got to you know, pay attention. Just put your head on a swivel and know your surroundings. Well, you would say that to the people in Philippi or to, the, to the, these guys, these Christians that are in Philippi. Philippi is not necessarily going to be a place that embraces Jewish teachers talking about this guy named Jesus. So keep in mind that they are there because they think God has called them there. Now, I know this next thing that I'm going to say is it's going to sound strange to somebody uh, who's not a Jesus follower. And in a crowd this size in both services, um, you know, people ask me sometimes, Brett, sometimes you talk to people who are, you think are atheists, and sometimes you talk to people who, who, that you talk to them like they don't go to church, but they're here, so they're at church. But I do, I talk to, I understand that when you come in here, not everybody's a believer. Some of you might be skeptical. Some of you might even describe yourself as an atheist. You're welcome here. We love it that you feel comfortable with us, and, and we're not looking down our noses at you. We don't think we're better than you. It's nothing like that. We, we have a faith system. You have a faith system, and hopefully you can kind of see where we're coming from. But when I talk in certain ways, to some people it sounds, you, they would just say, Brett, that just sounds weird. Because we, we talk, there are times when we talk about Jesus and we talk about God and we, 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 we say things like we're trying to figure out his prompting for us, right? Like, God's leading us. We even say things like that. I felt led to take this job, or I, I felt led to, you know, some people pray about what kind of car they're going to buy or what neighborhood they're going to live in, and you'll say something like, you know, I've been praying about it. I really think that's where we should go. Well, to certain ears, that just sounds weird. And, and you know, as Christians, we're trying to figure out what is it, God, what is it that you want us to do? We're, we're after God's will. 
And when you think you have God's direction, it can feel pretty uh, reassuring. When you think that God has led you in a certain place and, and, and everything falls into place and it all goes just according to plan, there's this, there's this feeling that you can have like, yeah, I mean, God's awesome and being a Christian's awesome and following Jesus is awesome. But when you think you've followed God, when you think you've heard his voice and he's called you to a certain place, and then all of a sudden things go south, and they don't all fall together, they fall apart. That can really mess with you. Wouldn't you think that if God is going to call you to a certain place or to do a certain thing, that he would do a better job of protecting you than sometimes it seems that he does? What do you do when you have obeyed what you think is the voice of God and that doesn't happen, he doesn't show up for you the way you thought he would, things don't go the way you thought they would. In fact, you would say, Brett, it just seems like it went completely the opposite of the way I was hoping that it would go. So for instance, your brother and and sister-in-law call you, they live in another state, they have a teenage daughter, your niece, and they, you know, the brother says, hey sis, um, you know, our daughter, she's, she, we've had trouble with her for quite some time. She's just not happy. She's not happy with us. She's not happy with school. We're not happy with the friends she has. Could she come and stay with you guys and go to school there? And, you know, sis, she loves you anyway, and you're such a good influence on her. Would it be, a, could she come stay with you? Well, you know, that's a pretty big request. And so, you know, you, you, tell, you tell them, hey, let's, we're going to think about it. We're going to pray about it, seek God's leading in this. And you do that for about a week. You call them back and you say, hey, we've decided that we want her to come stay with us. That would be a good thing. And so you do that. And now this young teenage girl comes to stay in your house. Now, if things go great, if if aunt you know, so-and-so and and niece so-and-so hit it off and they're able to have this connection and she's just so thankful that she came out here and she loves the school, she's making better friends, she's making better grades. If it all goes that way, two thumbs way up, right? Yay, God, way to go. But if she shows up and your marriage goes south, and your relationship with other kids goes south, and now you got people showing up at the house that you really don't want in your house, and you can't trust her, and you're being lied to. Now all of a sudden, this very thing that you felt led to do feels like the complete wrong thing, and it's confusing, and it's awkward, and in the words of the Hobbit, the adventure ends up being a nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable thing. And yet God led you somewhere And if he's going to lead you somewhere, wouldn't you think that he's going to take better care of you than that? But what if he doesn't? What what if he doesn't? Where does the heart go then? And that is the question that we are going to tackle today in Philippi. You've got a job, job A. It's a decent job. You've worked it for a while. You're making payments. You're covering the bills at the house. You guys are being able to put a little something away. And, and job B comes along, and you kind of entertain job B. And it's like, ooh, you know, we've got the stability of job A, but this new thing looks really nice, and, and sounds like there might be a little bit more money and maybe a little bit better conditions. And so you pray about it. You and your wife pray about it. And, hey, I think job A may be over. Let's go do job B. And you take job B. 
Well, if job B works out and you get rich and things go wonderful, woo, way to go, God. But all of a sudden, what happens if you find out job A takes off, they do great, and job B really encounters some trouble. There's some stuff going on, shouldn't have been going on, and now they're losing money, and now they're starting to have to lay people off, and you're one of the last ones hired, and now they lay you off. Now what, God? Hey, what's up with that? We felt great about this. We felt like God had led us here. Now it's unraveling on us. You must remember this as we move through this story. Paul had seen a vision, and he felt led to go there. And they're going to hit something that is nasty, (laughs) disturbing, and uncomfortable. And today, we're going to have a wonderful opportunity to talk about those times when we think we're doing the right thing, And we find ourselves in a painful place. We find ourselves in a place where things aren't going well. And we don't have the vocabulary to express it to God. That's our conversation today. Today's story unfolds in three characters uh, and three life-changing encounters. Encounter number one, the businesswoman. The businesswoman. Paul and a team arrive in Philippi, which is a Roman colony. And they leave town and they go down by the river because they, they've heard that down by the river there's this group of people that are meeting that are, they're, they're seeking God, they're worshiping, they're talking about God, they're, they're worshiping God. And um, uh, these people are of Jewish origin. They're meeting as a place of pay, pl- prayer. And Paul and the team head out there and they encounter these people and there's a, quite a few women And there's one woman in particular, and Paul kind of singles this one woman out and realizes that she may be open to hearing about Jesus. And so he he really starts to tell her uh, about Jesus. And we're told quite a bit about her. One of the things we know about her is that she was a seller of purple cloth. And you say, Brett, why is that significant? This product was not made in Philippi. This product is made in a place called Thyatira, which is where Lydia grew up. So she's familiar with purple cloth. Now, here's what you need to understand about purple cloth. It's really expensive in this time. The process by which you got purple or blue dye was very, very difficult. And you know as well as I do, when, some, when a process is difficult, it just makes whatever is associated with that project, uh, uh, product more and more expensive. And so purple or blue cloth was, was extremely rare and very expensive when you were able to find it. And she's importing this purple cloth and she's reselling it. And um, she's meeting with these people outside the city for prayer. And she's listening to to Paul uh, speak. Did I? No. I'll make sure I don't skip something. And she's listening to Paul speak and he begins to tell the story about the generosity of God and he talks about the grace of God and 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 God's wildly generous character and he's you know he captivates her attention with Jesus and this woman hears about Jesus for the first time and something opens up in her to what he's saying and in verse 14 of Acts 16 we read this one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. I love the fact that Luke gives us details like that. that that's, that's Luke's nature. He gives us a lot of detail. 
She's a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. Now, she's called a worshiper of God, but that could mean several things. In the Greek-Roman world, a worshiper of God, you, you know, there are different gods you could worship. You could worship Zeus or Athena or Apollo or Poseidon. You might even worship the emperor because the emperor called himself a god too. But this term worshiper of God is a descriptive term, as we read it here, for someone who is not Jewish but does not go offer sacrifices or go sleep with temple prostitutes or something like that. This is a person who's not Jewish but is seeking the Jewish God. She's referred to as a worshiper of God. She's a Gentile woman, non-Jewish. She has attached herself to this Jewish community to pray and seek God. We have no evidence that this woman has ever heard about Jesus. And she's there to grow and learn and listen. And we read this wonderful statement at the end of that verse I just read to you. It says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. It doesn't say that Paul was this great preacher and therefore convinced her with his words. That's not what it says. My prayer as a pastor is always get out of the way. Get out of the way. Don't get in the way of the message. Uh, You know, once in a while you're gracious. You'll come up to me and you'll say, Brett, man, that really you really spoke to me this morning. And my answer is usually the same. Hey, that's God doing that, not me. I had somebody walk up to me last week. Brett, how do you know? How do you know that that's what we're going through? I don't. God knows. And so I love it that Paul, you know, he he doesn't get the credit here. Scriptures tell us that the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. and, And God wants to be known. He wants to be known for his grace, for his generosity, for his kindness. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Just outside the city, about a mile, you arrive at a place where there is this river, and and they have diverted part of the river to come in to kind of make this stream, and they've built it up. There's a chapel there. There, You can see where they've they've poured this concrete, and it's tiered. and, um, And even to this day, this is the traditional spot where tradition says this is where Lydia uh, went into the water to be baptized. And, and to this day, people will go there, they'll, they'll make preparations, and they'll go into that water, and they'll be baptized. Now, is that the exact spot? I don't know. I think this. I think that if you went probably three or 400 yards on either side of that, you're probably pretty close to the place where Lydia and these people were hanging out trying to learn more about God. Um, somewhere near there, she stepped down into the water and she was baptized. And at that point, somebody hears me, you know, you've been coming to church a little bit. You've seen us baptize some people in recent weeks. And you're like, Brett, explain that to me. What is that? Why do you do that? I mean, it's just weird. You put people in this tank and you put them underwater and you pull them up. I mean, what's going on with that? Well, there's a couple of things I would say to you. The first thing I tell people is this. You never physically look more like Jesus than the day of your baptism. Because Jesus was a man who walked the earth, he was uh, murdered, what do you do with a dead person? You bury them, and then on the third day he was raised from the dead. And so when you are in the baptistry, what we say is that's you're dying to yourself. What do you do with a dead person? You bury a dead person, we call it the watery grave. You put them under the water, it symbolizes being buried. And then you are raised to walk in the newness of life. It represents a washing a cleansing because of Jesus taking your place on the cross, taking your sins 
upon himself and the punishment for your sins on him, and because of that, we are forgiven. Another thing I tell people, you know, it's a, it's a sign of, it's a life change thing. When you, when you embrace Christ in your life and you let him come into your heart, your life should instantly start to change because you're not living for you anymore. You're now listening to his voice. You're trying to do the things he wants you to do. And one of the first things that, that we do at Cross Lane when someone comes to Christ is we encourage them to be baptized. It's, it's really the, it's an act of obedience. It's one of the first things you can do to show God, hey, I'm serious about you. I'm gonna do the things you want me to do. You want me to be baptized? I may not understand it all completely, but I wanna do that if that's what you want me to do. And I tell people, baptism is a lot like a wedding ceremony. When a couple is getting married, when you go to a, a wedding, I almost said funeral, <laughs> when you go to a wedding, I hate when it does that. I'm happily married, by the way. When I joke like that, I'm very happily married. So. I, I believe in, in weddings, but I just should keep preaching, shouldn't I? Yeah, I should. I'll just keep preaching. So, Dee, where are you? I love you. She's teaching this morning. She's over teaching the kids this morning. Um, I tell them it's a lot like a wedding ceremony. When you go to a wedding, what's happening is you've got this couple that have proclaimed their love to each other privately. And at the wedding, they're now proclaiming their love for each other publicly. Now, some people know that they love each other, but that's kind of the symbolism behind it. We love each other, we wanna be married for the rest of our lives, and we're enjoying ourselves together. I have a friend named Barry Tucker. Hadn't seen Barry in ages. I went to school with Barry, and uh, Barry was probably one of the most spiritual dudes I ever met. I told you a couple weeks ago about borrowing his suspenders, and he told me to keep them. Barry, that's just the way Barry was. Spiritual, spiritual dude. Um, he, uh, Barry used to wear a wedding band on each hand. He had one for his wife, and he had one that he said, when you ask him about it, it has the inscription, the date of his, birth, of his baptism on it, and he would say, that's the day I married Jesus. And I love that, because that truly, that's what baptism is. It's like a proclamation, hey, you're stating publicly what you've stated privately. I'm inviting the Lord into my life, and now I want the whole world to know that I am a follower of Jesus. And so that's what's going on in baptism. Immediately upon being baptized, we see Lydia in action. Verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Now, I don't know what kind of arrangements Paul had made for Timothy and Silas and Luke to be staying in Philippi, I can promise you this was better, okay? I promise you. We think that Lydia was a person of some means. She probably had a pretty nice house, and she says, why don't you come stay with me and my family and eat with us and just stay with us while you're in town? Now again, purple was the color of royalty, and only wealthy people could afford it. So that leads us to believe that Lydia is pretty well-to-do. And her house may have very well looked something like this, large enough to have had a few people stay in her home. Uh, for a lot of people in that day and age, they would have been of much more humble means, and they couldn't have had four men come stay in their house. But Lydia could, and so she offers it. She invites Paul, Barnabas, Timothy, I'm sorry, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke to her home. So what I want you to understand is the Lord opens her heart and she opens her home. Do you see that? How her life immediately starts to change as Christ comes in and takes over 
in her world. Already she's saying, my, my life and my resources are in God's hands. Her hair is barely dry from her baptism, and she's saying, Lord, I'm yours. I'll do whatever you need me to do. And she's trying to figure out how to get her resources into play for the kingdom. What a great story, huh? Great story. The Hobbit said that adventures are nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. So far, there doesn't seem to be anything nasty, disturbing, or uncomfortable. You come out by the river, you have a talk, they respond well, she feeds you, great story, smooth, everything's going crystal clear, smooth, couldn't ask for it to go any better, but sometimes it doesn't happen like that. Encounter number two, the psychic. Verse 16, once when we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Now, this woman is under some form of demonic influence. Scripture talks a lot about demon possession. I think that's what this is. Uh, through this demon, she is able to predict the future, which, I mean, is pretty amazing. And the second half of this verse gives us some interesting, de interesting detail about her. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. So in Philippi, this is the way this would happen. You live in Philippi, you know that this girl exists, you know that she's owned by this, these men who've kind of built a business around her. And if you are, a, like, like say, an olive grower, and you, 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 your job, your business is all about exporting olive oil, and you've got a shipment that you're going to make late in the shipping season, and you're worried about the seas and rough seas, and you want to know if, 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 you know, if it's safe for you to put your, your olive oil on this ship and send it to other parts of the world, um, you want to know if it's going to be okay. You would not go to the girl. You would go to these men. And you would say, I'd like to be able to speak with your girl and see if she can tell me how my olive uh, shipment is going to go and they would say, well, that's great. Yeah, you can talk to her, and this is the price. And you'd hear it, and you'd kind of take a step back, you know, like, wow, that's a lot of money. But you want to know, and, and this girl's got a reputation, so you pay the money, and she tells you what's going on. And apparently, she's accurate enough at this that there's quite a long line, and there's quite a bit of money coming in for these guys as they, as they offer this girl and her services. Uh, this girl's very, very valuable to these owners, well, she starts, you know, they, she sees Paul and Silas and these guys in Philippi, and she starts running her mouth. She starts screaming at the top of her lungs, and, and this is all happening as Paul and Silas are walking by. Verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who, is telling you, who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, in Greek or Roman culture, the Most High God is Zeus, and you would say that Zeus lived on Mount Olympus. But if you're a Jewish culture, you're talking about the creator of the universe. These men are servants of the Most High God, and they are telling you the, the way to be saved. And Paul's thinking to himself, just keep your head down. Don't look at her. Don't make eye contact. Just keep walking. Ignore her. Okay? Ignore her. She'll shut up. Just keep walking. And so that's what he's hoping. Because, you know, listen, they say all publicity is good publicity. This was not good publicity for Paul and Silas. This isn't, this isn't the way they want to do this. But she kept at it day after day after day. Verse 18, she kept this up for many days. <laughs> I love this next line. 
I love that the Bible tells us this. Finally, Paul became so annoyed. Don't you love that? You're not the only one that gets annoyed. You're not the only one that gets ticked off. Paul gets, what does it look like for the Apostle Paul to get annoyed? Wouldn't you love to see? He was so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, and he doesn't address the young woman. He addresses the Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. The power of God is already at work in this story. And this is where, this, if the story ended right here, you'd say, "Woo, way to go, God, that was awesome. Woo, great story. But the story's not over. The demon exits the girl, and the cash flow exits the business. And now these guys are ticked off. The money dries up. She's no longer telling fortunes. The business is failing. All because these two guys did what they did. Verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So there's a bit of a racist thing going on here. These Jews are doing this. And now the people start yelling. Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Now, you hear that, and you think, come on, Brett, how bad can it be, right? I mean, stripped and beaten with rods, so they get buck naked and they hit them a little bit with some sticks. I mean, how, how you know, really, honestly, how bad is that? No, 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 no. This is meant to physically, emotionally, mentally mess you up. They're going to strip you down in a public place. People are going to be able to get in your face and taunt you and humiliate you and goad you while someone whose job it is to completely mess you up with rods, and I almost brought a rod with me and whipped it through the air so you could hear the whipping sound, you know? And imagine that someone strips you down and starts to beat you with a rod like that. Verse 23, after they had been severely flogged, that's how the Bible describes it, severely flogged. This isn't just bruises, not just welts, this is open cuts and lacerations probably all over your body, especially on your back. After they were severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them. What word do you see there? Carefully. Instruction. You make sure you keep up with these guys. Verse 24, when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. This is a dungeon, okay? There's, there's no windows, there's no light, there's no ventilation. I, I just imagine the stench in this place. Dark and dank and void of anything positive. And they've got your feet in stocks. That's, that means that you can't lay down on your back because your back has been opened by the beating that you just took. So your feet are in stocks and you're gonna sit on the hard ground and eventually your, your skeletal cheekbones are gonna start pinching 
your skin between the hard ground and it's going to get really, really uncomfortable and you've got nowhere to go. This is painful. This is hard. They're just sitting there. Their bodies are in shock. The smell is terrible. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're tired. They're exhausted. They don't know what to think. Remind me again how they got to Philippi and why did they go there? Oh, that's right. God led them to Philippi. God was sending them there. How's that working out for you? What do you do with that? When you sense that you're following God's leading and you end up in a house of pain, when you're hurting like you've never hurt before, and it all could have been avoided if you had just ignored that little voice that said, hey, come over here. I know you want to go that way. Come over here. I want you to go this way. And then you get there and it all goes south. What do you do? with that. Wouldn't you think that if God is going to lead you somewhere, he would do a better job of protecting you and taking care of you once you get there? Paul and Silas, bleeding backs, vulnerable to infection, can't sleep, and they are there because Paul had a vision from what he thinks is God. Not because they were running away from God. They were running to God. And this is what happened to them. That's pretty messed up. What are we to make of these kind of moments? We don't really know who started it, but one of them did. Our hope is in you alone. Our strength in your mighty name. Our peace in the darkest day remains, Jesus. Somebody started to sing. They're praying, and they're singing. Their bodies are bloodied. Their bodies are completely beaten up and racked with pain. They are literally have their feet racked in stocks. I don't care who you are. For you to be singing in a situation like that is just weird, okay? Can we just acknowledge that's not the normal reaction? Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And I love this line. And the other prisoners were listening to them. You got people watching you, you know that? You go to work, you got your little cross. You got your little cross around your neck and your little Bible. And you say your little Bible verses and you're constantly encouraging people and inviting people to come to church. And I want you to do all those things. Let me just tell you that when you do that and people know you're a believer and then they watch you come into hardship and things go south, they sit back and they watch you and they go, I wonder how this is going to go. I wonder how they're going to respond now. with backs that have been shredded in a smelly, stinky dungeon, a nasty situation, these guys are singing praises to God. Tell me exactly how do you do that? Praise from a pit. How do you do that? I want to offer you one word that I think gets you there, and the word is focus. Where is your focus in a moment like that? 
Because the automatic, uninvited direction of the heart in a situation like this is to focus on what has been stolen from you. I have been robbed. Paul and Silas would have said, we have, we have been robbed of a fair trial. We have been robbed of our dignity. We've been robbed of our health. We've been robbed of our sleep. We've been robbed of our comfort. And there is an opportunity in these moments not to obsess about what has been stolen from us, but instead to obsess about a generous God and all that he has given. Even though these guys have been beaten, they still have an obsession with the generosity of God. They were absolutely convinced that they, the God they served was good and was with them. And somehow in all this mess, God was going to show himself and he was going to show up and show off. You know, there are a lot of people walking around that call themselves Christians, and they do that right up until the time that everything goes south. And then all of a sudden, they stop going to church, they stop talking about praying, they stop talking about God, they don't do anything that they used to do, they get away from all their Christian friends, forget the church, and some of them go on Facebook and give us this great rant about how bad their life is and how God let them down. That's just wonderful. God isn't making my path smooth, and it's not all going good for me. In other words, to use an old preacher illustration, this thing's 100 years old. They want $2 worth of God. I just want $2 worth of God. Not enough to change my whole life. I just want enough to make me feel good, like I've had a nice warm cup of milk and you know a little snappy poo in the shade hammock and and, you know, $2 worth of God. Not enough to change my attitude, change my behavior. Just enough to get me into heaven. I think it was Josh McDowell that coined the phrase, everybody wants a Savior and nobody wants a Lord. It's important to settle this stuff before the beatings start. You get that? Settle this in your mind before the beatings start. Because once the beatings start, you're not likely to come to a place where you're ready to sing. Why could Paul and Silas sing in the middle of all this tragedy? Because that's where their heart was before the beatings started. Because if you wait until the beatings start, it is extremely difficult and not very likely that you are going to get to a place where you're ready to sing praises to God when it's all going south. I think what you see here are men clinging to the generosity and the goodness of God. Rather than obsessing over what had been taken from them, they were focused on what had been given. I, I say this all the time, but it really is the truth. Gratitude is at the core of Christianity. If you do not start your day from a point of gratitude, I promise you it's not going to be as good as if you did. Gratitude is the core of all of it. God, you are so good to me. How can I take this day and live it for you? A powerful thing happens in this ugly space. The Hobbit said adventures are nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. These guys had the resolve to believe that God may be at work in keeping them away from the mess. They also had the audacity to believe that God might be at work in the middle of the mess. The ground begins to move. This, this part of the country is 
prone to earthquakes. Some might say, well, Brett, that's just a coincidence. These guys are praying and, and singing, and all of a sudden there's a giant earthquake, and that's just a coincidence. I think we use that word too often. I think sometimes one thing happens, another thing happens, and you go, you know what? Those two things are connected. And I think in this case, these two things are connected. And all of a sudden, the jail cell starts to rattle, the doors start to rattle, the, the, the walls start to shake, and the shackles come out of the walls, and these guys are basically set free. Who do you suppose might have a vested interest in what's going on in this dungeon right now? Encounter number three, the jailer. The jailer. He's already been told, you watch these guys carefully. He wakes up, he sees the doors open. He is already drawing his sword. He's going to fall on his sword. He'd rather, he'd rather himself do it than for the Romans to kill him. It's, it's over for him. Verse 27, the jailer woke up when he saw the prison doors open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer, if he served any god at all, it was probably Zeus or Athena or Poseidon or Apollo or somebody like that, but he'd heard that demon-possessed girl. He'd heard her shouting about these guys. These are the servants of the Most High God, and they can tell you the way to be saved. Well, circumstances being what they are, he's kind of interested in what these guys have to say. And now he has messed them over. He has put them in the middle of the dungeon, put their feet in, in, in stocks. I mean, he has not been good to them. And he's thinking to himself, I'm in trouble with the gods. See, in this day and age, Poseidon would have been the god of earthquakes. So what he's thinking is, I need to get to the temple of Poseidon as quickly as I can. I need to take five goats with me, and I need to sacrifice five goats to the god of Poseidon because he's clearly unhappy with me. He's thinking to himself, what do I have to do to avoid the wrath of the gods? That question, what do I have to do? That is always the question that religion asks. I tell you all the time, we're not religious at Cross Lane. I don't, I don't want to be called religious. I don't like religion. But that's the question of religion. What must I do? He's thinking to himself, what do I have to do to appease the gods? Do I go to church? Do I swear less? Do I control my temper? What do I have to do? The jailer's question, uh, the reply was this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they're saying, look, dude, this is not about what you do. You've got to understand that, that it's all about what's already been done for you. Jesus already did it on the cross. He took your sins onto himself. You've been forgiven for everything. It's about what God has already done for you. I tell people this all the time. The difference between every other world religion and Christianity. You want to know what sets them apart? You want to know what makes Christianity different? Two letters, N and E. In every other world religion, it's about what you do. What have you done to get yourself saved? In Christianity, it's not like that. It's all been done for you by Jesus on the cross. And Paul and Silas begin to explain to this man what God has done, and his whole family comes to Jesus. What a glorious scene. These people are all baptized. It's awesome. The jailer washes their backs. 
that are prone to infection. He cleans up their wounds. He invites them to his house to have something to eat. God opens his heart. He opens his home. That next morning, Paul and Silas are leaving town. And they swing by Lydia's place. We read this in verse 40. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house. Well, you ask the question, why would they go to Lydia's house? Well, that's the gathering place for this new community of believers in Jesus. Where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, then they left. See, there's no church building yet. That wouldn't be for several hundred years. So they likely met in a place that might look something like this. They met with other brothers and sisters who are there. I think these people might have included the businesswoman, the jailer, the psychic. That's, a, that's an eclectic gathering of people, wouldn't you say? Different backgrounds, different perspectives, different socioeconomic status. They had some things in common, though. They... They were radically flawed, they were incapable of self-rescue, and they had experienced the grace and the generosity and the forgiveness of Jesus. No other community in Philippi would look like that community, a city that will inevitably get more cliquish and divisive depending on your background, your connections, where you work, who you know, but the church, the church in all of its beauty, in all of its weirdness, in all of its challenge, the church. This community will need some follow-up. You know, we, we get the story in Acts, we get the correspondence sometime later in what we call the book of Philippians. So Luke wrote the book of Acts to tell you what happened in Philippi. Later on, Paul writes to this church that he's established in Philippi to see how they're doing. And we read this in in Philippians 1, verse 6. We're almost done. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, what does that mean? God's going to finish what he started. Lydia, God is going to finish what he started in you. Jailer, God is going to finish what he started. Little demon girl, God started something in your heart. He's going to finish what he started. And as Paul writes these words, he is in prison again. And this time he may die there, and he knows it. Which is stunning when you realize what he wrote in the fourth chapter of Philippians. Listen to this. I have learned the secret of being content in in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Doesn't matter my circumstances. I've learned to be content and I've learned to trust God. And you say, (laughs) Brett, Brett, that's great. But I don't have the strength for that. You know what? Paul didn't either. And it's here that we get that famous line out of Scripture. Chances are good somebody in here has got it tattooed on their body somewhere. You may have a plaque on your wall that has this printed on it. You've no doubt have sent a card at some point that either you wrote it or it was quoted on the card. Um, Very good chance somebody's got a Bible in here right now that has this highlighted 
It's that 13th verse that you have heard so many times, but now you get the context for the verse. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Years later, Paul is still finding strength for his journey. And it's been my prayer this week that you would find strength for yours. A lot of stuff going on, man. A lot of stuff. I know some of you got hard things. I pray that God has enough strength for you in the journey. Let's pray together. God, whether our bellies are full or whether they're not, whether everything in our world is all put together or it's just all falling apart, I pray, Father, that in these moments we are able to look at you and say you are a good God and our hope is in you alone to sustain us and carry us and deliver us to that place that you have determined for us. Father, I won't speak for anybody else, but if that place ends up being death for me and that's what you got, I'll take it because you're good and I trust you. And so, Father, I pray for these people this morning. Some of them are smack dab in the middle of a beating. Some of them are in that place where they feel like their feet are in stocks and their back is bloodied and broken open. And I pray that in the midst of that kind of pain and that kind of hardship, they would be able to pray and sing praises to your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.